I would invite you to please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the prophet Joel. Prophet Joel, this is on page 965 if you're using the Pew Bible. This evening's text will be chapter 1, verses 5 through 20. The prophecy of Joel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are a lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Thus far is the reading of God's life-giving word. Let us pray. God in heaven, we give thanks and praise you for the privilege that is ours to mine the riches of your word tonight. We confess that passages like this are hard to read and hard to consider, and yet they are in your word, and so we know they are recorded for our good. Would you make us tonight those who would note your kindness that leads to repentance? We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 
In Luke chapter 15, we find the famous parable of the prodigal son. And in the passage, Jesus tells the story about a man who has two sons. And the younger of them asks that he might receive his inheritance uh, ahead of schedule and that he might go off and live on his own. And the heinousness of this request is an often under-reflected on portion of the story. Because he's essentially asking that he might enjoy all the benefits and privileges of his, being his father's son, divorced from the reality of a relationship with his father. And of course, the young man squanders his inheritance, and before long, he winds up broke and feeding the pigs, living on scraps. His life has been made in utter ruin because of his sinful choices. And the people of Judah find themselves in a similar situation to that of the prodigal son. For some time, they have sought to enjoy all the privileges, all the blessings of God's covenant without a personal relationship with the living and true God. I suspect that we all here have felt that tug of our old sin nature from time to time. That's why the words of the hymn writer resonate so deeply. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Warren Risby describes it this way. He says, Too often we drift along from day to day, taking our blessings for granted, until God permits a natural calamity to occur and reminds us of our total dependence on him. Then we discover the poverty of our artificial civilization and our throwaway society. Suddenly necessities become luxuries, and luxuries become burdens. And as you'll recall from our previous study, we're not exactly sure when to date Joel's prophecy. Nobody really knows. But we do know the historic occasion that it's based on. It's the great locust plague that had brought the people of God to their very knees. And the curse of the locusts was one that God promised in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 38 for all those who would break covenant with him. The coming of this plague was a clear sign of God's judgment against his people. But the implication of this passage is that they had wandered so far away from the word of God that they did not recognize his judgment when it was right in their face. God was not merely passively neglecting to protect his people from the locusts. No, people may have been willing to accept that. What makes Joel's prophecy so shocking is that he is claiming, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God sent the plague with intentionality as judgment. James Montgomery Boyce comments, the most important thing about Joel's handling of the disaster is that he sees God as responsible for it. And in light of this, Joel calls his readers to take stock of their woeful condition, to lament their circumstances, and ultimately to return to the Lord whom they have offended with broken and contrite hearts. He calls them to lament for their sins and to repent of their sins. And we'll consider both of those callings tonight as this passage rather neatly divides into two main sections. Uh, verses 5 to 12, the call to lament. And then verses 13 to 20, the call to repent. First, the call to lament. 
The par- in the parable of the prodigal son, we're told before he returns home, something miraculous happens. In Luke fifteen seventeen, we read that he came to himself. That is, he came to his senses after realizing his current lowly condition, that he would have, been, he would have given anything to be fed half as well as the pigs that he was feeding, and no one gave him a morsel. To borrow language from our Westminster Confession of Faith, the young, man, the young man sensed not only the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. And that is what Joel is calling the people of God to do in this text, to come to themselves. The entirety of this opening section uh, reflects, like a mirror, a psalm of lament, there are actually three subsections in this, in this section on lament, uh, and they all follow the same basic pattern. There begins, they begin with a, a call to come to our senses, and then are followed by a description of the calamity itself. In these verses, we will see the conditions the people lament are getting progressively worse. In the first stanza of the lament, verses 5 to 7, Joel addresses the loss of wine, which is a representative of the luxuries of life being taken away. And then in the second stanza, verses 8 to 10, he shows that the, uh, the elements that were necessary for the worship of God have been removed. And finally, in verses 11 to 12, we see that the wheat and the barley, which represent the, the basic foods of their diet, have dried up. One commentator sums up the section this way. To lose the enjoyment of wine is one thing. To lose the ability to outwardly worship God is of greater significance. But to have nothing to eat is tantamount to a sentence of death, close quote. And so Joel begins this call to lament by addressing the drunkards amongst the people. He says, awake you drunkards and weep. See, God had given wine to gladden the hearts of men. This is the teaching of Psalm 104.15, Ecclesiastes 10.19, and several other places in the Old Testament. But the people of God had so imbibed of their material blessings, they had so overindulged in the kindness of the Lord that they had lost sight of the fact that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Parents know well what this is like. It's not uncommon to give a child a a token of of your affection for them, a a, a gift as an expression of love. And sometimes, if a parent does too good of a job at picking out what their child will like, the child loses sight of the giver entirely and becomes totally consumed with the gift itself. In my house, it's Batman toys. What does a loving parent do at a time such as that? They take the gift back. Not as a means of getting even with the child, not as a means of retribution. No, it's in order to shock that child out of their trance. It's to get their heart back focused on what it should be. And in verse 5, Joel depicts the nation as though they had been in some inebriated stupor for years. And it's very likely that many of his initial readers had been in the most literal sense of that term. But his point is that the whole nation was was failing to grasp the severity of God's judgment on them. They didn't recognize it. John Calvin says, Wine so infatuated their senses that they continued to laugh in the face of their great calamities. 
They were in danger of becoming like the medical, metaphorical frog in the pot of boiling water. Whether or not that anecdote is scientifically accurate, the premise is that if you take a frog and place them in a pot of boiling water, they will immediately recognize the difference in temperature and leap out. But if you place him in the pot of lukewarm water or warm room temperature water and then gradually increase the heat, by the time it's boiling and they've recognized what it is, it's too late and they will boil alive. Men are slow to perceive God's judgment. You see, in the land of Judah, their sin had gotten progressively worse. And God's judgments had become progressively more clear, and yet they did not perceive it. If they do not turn back now, they may soon reach the point of no return. And God's judgment was carried out in very dramatic style. We read in verse 6 that he compares the locusts to an enemy nation to an invading army, if you will. And this tells us that the destruction was systematic. It was a forceful onslaught. He describes the nation as powerful and beyond number. The people of Judah never stood a chance. And then he describes their weaponry in the rest of verse 6. He says, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. There is a note of trembling that's actually more clear in the Hebrew if we stick to the original word order. It's, it's as if Joel is stammering. He's saying, and the teeth, the, the, the teeth of a lion. It's petrifying to consider. Now, this has also caused some form of stumbling amongst readers of this passage because as some of you may know, locusts don't have teeth. Some commentators have sought to rectify this by saying there are some that appear to have teeth and they have coloration that's similar to that of a lion. I confess I did not care about the specific types of locusts enough to look deeply into that. I think there's a better explanation. If you know your Old Testament well, you know that a lion is a a stock metaphor in the writings of the Psalms, especially for ferocity. The the, the emphasis is on the destruction. Uh, Consider Psalm 7 and verse 2. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart. Or Psalm seventeen twelve, speaking of the enemy of God, he or speaking of the enemy of God's people, rather, he is like a lion, eager to tear. The focus on the teeth is highlighting how the locust had ripped everything to shreds, and they were devouring all the goods of God's people. And so, in light of this sudden, organized, violent judgment. The Lord, through Joel, calls his people not only to awake, but to lament. Look at verse 8. He says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. This imagery here is is meant to grab you. It's that of of a young woman betrothed to be married. She's been looking forward to this her whole life. And the night before her wedding... Her groom, the one who was to provide for her, to protect her, to love her, to cherish her, to provide her an offspring, ripped from her by death. All of the promises that she had been looking forward to being fulfilled in her life, all of the things that she hoped for, they died with him. Surely it is well said that the bride who has been robbed of her groom knows the deepest and most bitter lamentation. 
And this is not random language that Joel employs. You people know well that the Bible, in the Bible, God often styles his relationship with his people as that of a husband and a wife. This is the clear teaching of, of Ephesians chapter 5, the whole book of Hosea, and several other places. And in the case of this broken covenant, God's people, they have, they have so separated themselves from God that God may as well be dead in their eyes and mind. Think back to the prodigal son. He asked to receive his inheritance early. What is the occasion that normally results in receiving an inheritance? It's the death of your benefactor. The son was asking to live as though his father was dead. And in the same way, Joel is telling his people that because they have lived as though God were dead, God has sent this curse upon them. They have cut God out of their thinking, and therefore God has cut them off from his very presence. And this sharp cutoff is seen in verse 9, where Joel writes, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. These grain and drink offerings were instituted as part of the system, part of the sacrificial system by which God's people could dwell with him. We sang earlier tonight uh, in, in the opening psalm, Psalm 135, about the Lord delivering his people from Egypt. And he delivered them so that they might dwell with him, so that they might serve him. And we read at the end of the book of Exodus, after God has delivered them, that he, he, he had them construct the tent of meeting so that that would represent his dwelling with them. And Moses, the most holy of them all, was unable to enter the tent of meeting. And the book of Leviticus picks up right where Exodus left off by noting in Leviticus 1.1 that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, so the Lord called to him from the tent of meeting. And the first nine chapters of the book is the institution of this sacrificial system, the end of which we read in Leviticus 9.23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. They were permitted into the presence of God because of these offerings in the tent of meeting that are now supposed to be offered in the temple of God. And those sacrifices and the things necessary for them have been cut off. They have been stripped away from the presence of their God. Dwayne Garrett explains the Israelites were supposed to make daily offerings at the sanctuary that included lambs, dr grain offerings mixed with olive oil, and libations or drink offerings. And when these were cut off by an act of Yahweh, it was as if the covenant had been annulled and the daily order of creation itself were suspended, been cut off from the presence of God. And so he goes on with another call, not only to lament, but to be ashamed. See, this is, this is intensifying the situation. It's not just being sorry about your circumstances. It's actually saying, it was my fault. The ground is mourning because of me. God entrusted its care to me, and that's why it's mourning, because I failed. The, the, it's my fault that the grain is destroyed. It's my fault that the wine is dried up and that the oil languishes. It, it's my fault that gladness has dried up from the children of man. That's, that's what is meant by this call to be ashamed. And in the Hebrew, these are several short clauses that Joel uh, carefully orders for, for maximum, maximum impact. He's like a trained boxer 
that has perfectly uh, outlined a sequence of strikes so that each punch will land just right. He's trying to rhetorically slap them upside the head, if you will, that they might see the severity of their condition and that it has been sent upon them by the God whom they have offended, that they might lament, they might mourn. But that is not all that we have in our passage today. There's also this call to repentance. And if you'll think back in your mind once more to the prodigal son, after he came to himself, he, he resolved to return to his father. But more than that, he, he was going to beg to be received back as a servant. He owned the guilt and the consequences of his sin, and he was desiring to throw himself on the mercy of his father. In a similar way, the people of God need to do more than just come to their senses in the pig slop of their lives. They need to own their sin. They need to return, confess, and plea for mercy. In short, they need to repent. And and in this section of verses 13 to 20, we'll see uh, the posture of this repentance, the reason for repentance, and the hope in repentance. Joel makes this call in verse 13, and he begins with calling to the priests. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. One scholar writes, it's time for the priests to come before Yahweh, not in splendid priestly vestments, but in common coarse cloth garb. It's time to lament in the manner of people grieving when someone's died. Time to join the drunkards and the vine dressers wailing. Time to spend the night doing it to show how serious they are. He tells them to spend, to pass the night in sackcloth in verse 15. These priests, as ministers of God's covenant, they have an obligation to restore the people of the covenant to right standing with their God. And the consequences, should they fail, are dire, to say the least. Remember, this, this whole plague was, was, was prescribed in Deuteronomy 28. And in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says in verse 22, for those who break the covenant, that these curses shall pursue you until you perish. And that word pursue means exactly the same thing in Hebrew as it does in English. It doesn't mean that they'll just kind of be around dispassionately means these curses are coming after you for the rest of your life. And for this reason, the priests are called not only to wail in sackcloth themselves, but this is the posture. They're to do so corporately. They're to gather God's people to consecrate a fast in Judah. And in verse 14, they're told to gather the elders and also all the inhabitants of the land. I believe this gathering of the people is designed for for two purposes. One is that, as we know from singing Psalm 4 earlier this evening, the Lord hears when one of his people call to him. The Lord hears when one sinner calls to him in faith. How much more will he hear when the collective corporate body does? The second reason is that it's instructive for the people It's instructive for them to see that what's going on here is a big deal. It is often the case that the significance of an event in the life of a community is is shown to the people by the way their leaders respond. 
I remember well the morning of September 11th, 2001. I was in an eighth grade English class. And in the middle of the lecture, uh, an announcement from the principal came over the intercom with some just bizarre message about safety and protocols and things like this that had never happened before. And we all begged our teacher to tell us, what's the meaning of this? What's going on? And, And through tears, she sobbed out the events of the morning and the attack on the World Trade Center. And we went about the rest of our day, but it was just this bizarre fog of things where our teachers were in the class, but they were understandably very preoccupied with the world events. And it seemed like the whole town kind of shut down for a week. Sports games were canceled, all kinds of things that just were out of sorts. And, and the way that my community responded to those events communicated to my 14-year-old brain in a way that words just couldn't, that something major had happened. And it's a similar intent with the, the, for the people of God when, when the elders are calling them all together in the midst of this turmoil that there might be a, a time of fasting and prayer, that they might learn how serious their breaking of the covenant with God had been. And Joel will really hammer home how big of a deal this is when he gives us the reason for that repentance in verse 15. He even gasps, alas, the day. There's a pause mark that's in the text in the Hebrew at this point, as if Joel has to regain his composure before going on. It, it's, it's, it's as if he doesn't know how to continue. That, that Hebrew word for alas, it's, it's one that's used to communicate the sense of shocked horror. Uh, if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of having the wind knocked out of you and that very last gasp of air expels from your mouth and you that sound, that's, that's the way this word is pronounced. That's what it's meant to communicate. It would be difficult to overstate the severity of this day that Joel is trying to relay to the people. The best illustration I could find was that of the Hindenburg In May of 1937, there was a massive passenger aircraft that was flying over a small town in New Jersey. The vessel was called the Hindenburg and was something of a modern marvel. And because of its uh, fame, there was a newscaster named Herb Morrison who was reporting on it. And as the cameras began rolling, Herb Morrison was just talking about the weather. And suddenly, the Hindenburg burst into flames with 96 souls on board. And the newsreel of this event can still be found online. Everything lives forever on the internet. And when the flames burst forth from this aircraft, Morrison famously screams, Oh, the humanity! And he went on, I can hardly breathe. I'm, I'm going to step inside where, where I can't see it. This is the most horrific thing I've ever seen, he says. And Morrison's sight was tragic for those 96 souls and for their families. But what Joel beheld, the day, had tragic implications for the whole nation. And once he regroups and and gets control of himself, he tells us just what day it is that he sees. Alas, for the day... For the day of the Lord is near. He's saying that, that these events, 
They are just a foretaste of the coming judgment of the day of the Lord. It's a temporal judgment that God's people had earned for breaking covenant with him. And it was a reminder of the eternal judgment that awaits all those who are not in right standing with God. In the same way that the the eschatological glories of the new heaven and the new earth break forth into our realm when we observe Lord's Day worship on Sunday mornings and evenings with the preaching of the word and the prayers of the saints and the sacraments rightly administered and all those glories break through and we feel that in that same way, the woes and destruction and judgment of the day of the Lord had broken through to Joel's contemporaries. This is the motive. This is the reason to repent. Turn back to the Lord now or the results of this locust swarm will be the least of your concerns. It's as Jesus told uh, those in his day after the fall of the tower at Siloam, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Joel Joel goes on. He says, as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. It's difficult to imagine just how shocking that would have been to the ears of Joel's original readers and hearers. See, the people of Judah had long expected the judgment of God to come on their enemies. They had long expected the judgment of God to come on the Gentiles. And it had never crossed their mind that he might deal similarly with them. And Joel's message, as we said last time, is that he absolutely will. This is just a moment in time picture of far worse things to come for the people of God if they persist in their current state. The the same God who rained down fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. The same God who, who destroyed Egypt with those ten plagues. He had now turned his ire on his covenant people. And if the day of destruction was awful for those pagans, and it was, how much worse will it be for those to whom belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises and the patriarchs? Our Lord tells a parable in Luke chapter 12 about a master who sets a manager over his, over his estate while he's away. And he concludes that the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What a sobering teaching that is, not just for the people of Judah when Joel was writing, but for us as the people of God today. Children raised in a church like this, do not despise your birthright. You have been given much, and much will be required of you chiefly that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just a warning to children, though. It's a warning to all who are in any way connected to the visible church. You've been given much, and of you much will be required. This would be a a verse I would commend to your memory, Joshua 23.11. Let us be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. And so shocking 
is Joel's interpretation of the events that you, you can sense he, he feels the need to further convince his readers. He begins to employ rhetorical questions. In verse 16, he says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? It's, it's as if he's anticipating, God would never do this to us, Joel. What are you talking about? And he says, look around you. It's all burnt up. Don't you see? Implied answers, of course, yes, they do. And he pushes further with anecdotal evidence in verse 17. Everything is shriveling and dying. This passage strongly suggests that after the locusts had come through, there was also a drought and then a great fire. And Joel's point is that all of this, as we've already said, is only a foretaste of what God will do if we persist in our stubborn hard-heartedness. And in addition to the barren and scorched land, Joel then brings to testimony that of the animals, the beasts, to witness that they are currently under the judgment of God. In verses 18 and 20, he notes that the beasts of the field know that their only recourse is to groan to God. As Isaiah would put it in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, I am well aware that this has been a heavy sermon to listen to up to this point. It is a heavy text. It was a heavy one to write. And it would be absolutely appropriate for us to leave this evening lamenting our sin grieving over our sin, repenting, mourning. But I do not want you to leave here grieving your sin without hope, as others do. For the child of God, there is no absence of sin in your life, but there is always hope. This hope is found in our passage in verse 19 as Joel begins to lead them in a prayer to the Lord. And you all know that when you see Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, that's a stand-in for the name Yahweh, the covenant name of our God. The hope that Joel has for the people of God is that he does not merely pray to God as their creator, as the beasts groan to him. But no, he prays to, that, prays to him as Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, who even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And, and this hope in, in God's promises, it's actually sprinkled throughout the passage. I don't know if you caught it, but look back again now at verse 6. The Lord calls it my land. In verse 7, he speaks of my vine. In verse 13, he's addressed to the priests as your God. In verse 16, he's addressed to the people as our God. God remembers his promises to Israel. He remembers his promises of the land and of the offspring. And nothing will separate the people of God from his love. He has given them every possible advantage, every possible reason to trust him, every possible reason to be faithful. And none of those reasons in and of themselves had convinced them. On the other hand, Israel and Judah had given God 
every reason to cut them off. Every reason to destroy them. After the great miraculous delivery from Egypt, a few chapters later, there's the golden calf in Exodus 32. We heard this morning, after the promise of the land in in Numbers 13 and 14, the wicked report of the spies that say, we cannot go up and take that. In Numbers 16, there's the rebellion of Korah. There's the whole cycle of the book of Judges. There's the failings of the king. There's the sin of calling for a king, refusing to have God be their king. Then there's the failings of Saul and David and Solomon and nearly all of their successors. They've given him countless reasons. The Reformed Baptist pastor Paul Washer once said in a sermon, and it has stuck with me ever since, I have given God countless reasons not to love me. And not one of them has changed his mind. You see, Joel's hope in, his, in, his, in this repentance is not found in the merit of the people. They don't deserve it. It's found in the grace of God. Because that is the kind of God he is. He is the God who, whose very glory is bound up in the fact that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. His hope is well summed up in that very first word of address that the prodigal son brings home. When he says, Father, See, when you, as a child of God, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever the grievousness of your sin might be, when you come to him with a broken and contrite heart, when you come to him in sincere repentance, you are not coming to your judge. You're coming to your father who will always take you in. How do we know that? How do you know? It's the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know that God will take you back because he did not send his son for nothing. He sent his son to be incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That he might live the perfect and sinless life that you and I have been called to live and have failed. And he gave his son in the crucifixion to die the, the, the heinous, shameful, embarrassing death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. See, when the prodigal son returns home to his father, he plans to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. But his father was watching from far way off. He had compassion on him. And he would not hear any such nonsense about treating his beloved son as a servant. Instead, he says, clothe the boy with the best robe. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and kill the fatted calf for a feast. For this my son was dead. And he is alive again. This is the picture of what awaits the people of Judah and what awaits you when you return to your heavenly father. And it is only possible 
because of what Christ Jesus has done for sinners like you and like me. See, the most profound thing about the parable of the prodigal son is that it's told by the very one who makes it possible for sinners like us to repent. And he does more. He's the one who promises that new wine. Wine had been cut off from the lips of the people. He promises new wine in the new heavens and the new earth. The bridegroom had been cut off from the people. He is the bridegroom that you will never lose. He is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system that will never cast you out. And he is the one who will wipe away every tear of lament for your, from your eyes and tell you, Behold, I am making all things new. And that all things, it includes you. When we grieve and, rement, and, and lament and, and remorse over our sins, and we want to be better, we want to be more conformed to the image of the Son, to grow from one degree of glory to the next. We have this promise And when we come to him with repentant and contrite hearts, he is making all things new. And so if you're here tonight, listening online or some way under the sound of my voice, and you are not lamenting for your sin, you are not making war against the sin in your heart, then my call to you is simple. Wake up. Get in the fight. Our God plays for keeps. Begin to weep and to wail. But don't stay there. Lay behind every weight and sin that clings so closely and look to Jesus. For it shall come to pass that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you don't know where to start, the words of Joel 1.19 are a great place to start. To you, O Lord, I call. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your word. I pray that if there be any here or listening online who have traded their inheritance as sons for the slop of the world, that you would cause them to come to themselves, that they would awake and lament their fallen state. I pray that they would return to you in repentance and faith. And Lord, for others who have not walked away but are still in the fight, would you give them the hope of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Help us to be a people ever calling to you, O Lord. I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.